administration as I speak. And I would suggest, in fact, I would, I would observe that President Donald J. Trump has gotten more done in one week in office than Barack Obama did in eight years, possibly than in the past uh, 24 years. Uh, I mean, generally speaking, I think that uh, Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama were t- tended to be just, you know, these guys who enjoyed the office. There wasn't a lot of vision there. They sort of let, um, let the establishment keep rolling along. Nothing new, just the usual, uh, you know, liberal utopian talk and, uh, you know, an increase in the size of the government, spending money, increasing the debt, transferring governing authority to uh, unelected officials, um, whether they be um, in in bureaus uh, or whether they be on an international level, Um, kind of stasis on the international scene. The United States not uh, asserting its identity, its sovereignty, its uh, prerogatives as a as a nation of um, of business people and freedom loving people, but sort of a, a cultural demise, a, a sort of a, a slow sinking into the miasma of internationalism. Um, no great vision there, and. President Trump has come in and basically doing as he said he would do with 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 guns ablazing, so to speak, and he has redefined. He's reminded us of what it is to be American again. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've said I've talked about this in this program, and I will reiterate that I almost believe, and I'm a believer, in, of course, in God, and I believe as an observant Jew, I believe in the Torah. And maybe I'm speaking from that perspective, maybe not, but I personally believe, given my belief orientation, maybe, maybe not, that this nation really dodged a bullet with the election of Trump and that, um, that there is a divine aspect to this. This is, we are saved. You know, we are back. Our culture is now booming our politics are booming. Our economy is booming. The American individual is booming. I mean, this is this is would not have happened had Donald Trump not been elected. You know, I mean, I think we can all probably safely assume that if Hillary Clinton had been elected, nothing would have happened. There would not have been any change in in the international scene. There would not have been any change, certainly in the stock market or in business. There would not have been any change in policy. We would have continued the slide toward, certainly toward socialism, but also toward instability around the world with ISIS on the march. I mean, let's not forget, Hillary has gotten huge amounts of money donated to the Clinton Foundation from very regressive Arab nations and Muslim nations who, uh, well, I mean, we could get into what they, what, how they treat women and contrast that with the Million Women March, but I'll go there in a minute. What we would have would be just more of the same. Torpid, dull, uninspired, uninstructed government where powers continually slide into the, the, the unelected realm and where we continue to have this despairing sense that we are losing control of our own politics, 
and as such of our own lives and our own destinies. I mean, what would be the main topic of conversation today, this week, if Hillary Clinton were just sworn in as president? I mean, I, I don't mean to sound sarcastic here, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but frankly, the main topic of conversation, it's almost predictable, would be that we would be debating about whether or not girls, girls' bathrooms and girls' shower rooms should be integrated. That would be what we'd be talking about. Not what, not the, you know, you know, Hillary Clinton would not have done, she would have been just like Obama, basically a, a you know, a loner, sort of, you know, living isolated in the, in the White House. You know, Obama and his family spent almost $100 million of taxpayer money on these fabulous trips around the world. You know, it's really the only time they leave other than do fundraising. Um, whereas Donald Trump, he's doing what presidents should do and more when he has meetings with the top executives from the automobile industry. He has meetings with top union bosses around the country who, by the way, came out of that meeting singing his praises and saying that the meeting was fantastic and productive he's you know uh, you know he's already rescinding some of these really you know inexplicable executive orders that that president obama issued in the last month of his presidency where apparently he added i think it was 18,000 pages to the book of regulations these are these are regulations that can be very expensive and very devastating to the formation of businesses and the advancement of businesses. Well, President Trump is rescinding those as we speak. I mean, he's been doing it all week. One of the worst ones, apparently, President Obama, literally hours before leaving office, as he was probably getting ready to go onto the motorcade to take him to the inaugural ceremony, he signed a bill authorizing the release of $225 million to the Palestinians. Well, the Republican Congress and President Trump has put a stop on that check, so they're not going to get the money. This was against the advice of the Republican Congress, which said that before the money can be released to the Palestinians, not that it should be released at all, that's another conversation. I would say it should never be released, but even let's let's put... put put aside that and say that there were conditions by which it would be released, conditions that the American people through their congressmen demanded. And those were things like to stop the Jew-hating, uh, you know, stuff in their, in their, that they're teaching their children in textbooks, right? Um, to stop, you know, giving money to families who's um, had a family member who went out and slaughtered Jews. You know, these were sort of basic conditions by which the United States, the American people, would take money out of their pockets and hand it over to the Palestinians. You know, in other words, we would have standards by which we would give people money. Barack Obama sought to circumvent that and just give them a gift as he was leaving. And of course, this, you know, this idea of handing out money to people because they want it is an idea that is coming to an end under President Trump. Um, this is going to set the left and set socialism back, I predict, probably by a generation. We won't hear from them 
in another 30, 40 years, I predict. Maybe never. Um, President Trump is saying that, for example, and, and he's doing some things that the left, as it were, on the surface has advocated and has talked about for years. But, of course, their position on it was entirely situational. They didn't actually believe any of it. And that's things like buying American, you know, to help American workers and help American industry, keeping capital in the United States where it can be invested in infrastructure. Didn't we hear for the past eight years the droning on about infrastructure? Well, guess what? President Donald Trump is going to build infrastructure and he's going to do it without raising taxes. And he's going to do it by reducing onerous business regulations, which cost our economy and cost our government up to a trillion dollars a year, according to a recent report issued by a budget watchdog group. Now, and by the way, it's bigger than that even. It's probably more if you add up the indirect consequences and the slowing down of, of, um, of production that these reg- many of these regulations cause. I mean, if if President Trump can do that and that one thing, get rid of these onerous regulations, and they are doing it, and they have a list of them, and they're regulations that hurt working people, they're not there to protect anybody, right? Then, you know, in in eight to ten years from now, just that one act alone is going to cut the deficit by half because President Barack Obama left us with an $8 trillion, a $10 trillion, what am I saying, eight, ten, twenty trillion. what am I, let me get my head straight here, $20 trillion increase in the deficit. That would cut it in half. Just that one act alone, by attrition, would cut it in half, right? With all of the interest would be cut in half as well. The interest that's paid to the, you know, to the Federal Reserve and their, their member banks. All of that would go by the wayside over a 10-year period, just with that one reform, nothing else. We're not even talking about, you know, other good government reforms. And I know it sounds awfully quaint and old-fashioned and dull to talk about good government reforms, but isn't that, or isn't that supposed to be the job of government? Uh, isn't that our job as citizens who elect government to make sure that they are constantly uh, trying to save money and, and streamline activities so that it's, it's proportional to, to cost, that we're getting a bang for our buck. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Well, that's what Donald Trump has talked about doing, and he's doing it. I mean, I know it's symbolic, but even while he was president-elect, he told Boeing that he was not going to spend, what was it, something like, like $500 billion or $300 billion, some astronomical figure, on rebuilding Air Force One, and he got them to cut the cost down to about a third of that, right? That's what a president, and that's what our Congress is supposed to do. You know, he's going to save money on the military. Isn't that something the left has been crowing, crowing about for the last 25 years at least? He's going to save money on the military, by cutting out $5,000 toilet seat covers, and at the same time, he's going to make the military better. Anyway, let me just, uh, let me see what's going on here. My, let me put this on next and edit. 
upload and we'll go I'm, I'm still you'll have to excuse me here i'm, I'm not uh, i'm still not adept at um, at all details of of the wonderful world of computers uh so let's hear from you while i'm while i'm fiddling with my my youtube here um 855-915-9636 chuck morse here at uh, at wmfo medford um, you're certainly welcome to the, to join me at this program anytime. Um, all right, there we go. Back up on YouTube if you want to watch the show. Um, not that it's so interesting; it's just my face <laughs> in the in the WMFO excellent WMFO studios, <clears throat> which, by the way, certainly are, are top notch. Um, that says it's unavailable. Okay. Well, let's let's put a kibosh on that then. Maybe I'll do Facebook and, and, and record that a bit. Uh, 855-915-WMFO. 855-915-WMFO. Um, and uh, getting back to the miracle in the White House, to my way of thinking, this is a great and glorious day in America. Um, we have a president who's actually acting like a president should act. He's, he's acting in, in the interests of the American people. What could be better than that? Um, there we go. Go live. Three, two, one. And here we are, WMFO, on Facebook, on YouTube, all that good stuff. Uh, 91.5 AM, Medford, Boston, Chuck Morse, the Morse Force, 855-915-9636. So I, I was talking before before you at Facebook have joined me briefly. I was on live on YouTube. I'm learning all these technologies. It's amazing. But um, on, on this great and glorious miracle, I would even bluntly say miracle, too. And I know that's not fashionable in some quarters. And that is the election of President Donald Trump. And his inauguration, he's got more done in one week for the American people than the past three administrations did in 25 years. Um, he's rescinding orders left and right that are unconstitutional or questionable, that are expensive, that are anti-business. I gave one example on an international level. He, he stopped payment on the check. Him and the Republican Congress stopped payment on a check for $225 million to the Palestinians. Uh, money that uh, Barack Obama authorized literally hours before leaving office. And that's just one example. There were all these other little hand grenades that Obama planted on his way out the door. And President Trump is stepping up and, and uh, rescinding these things at a, at a rapid rate. It's amazing. It's a miracle, actually. But perhaps the most miraculous thing of all... Um, something that I never thought I would see in my lifetime is the fact that President Trump is cutting back on American spending at the United Nations. Now, this is significant. What he has said is that he is not going to f have American taxpayer money fund organizations in the United Nations and affiliated with the United Nations, the non-governmental organizations, that formally recognize the Palestinian Authority and not Israel. He's not going to fund organizations and um, affiliates that do business with terrorist groups. 
and by the way, I think in that he includes Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood, he is not going to do business and finance any organization that, that runs contrary to American values. I never thought I'd see this. You know, this would never have happened. Not only under, under Hillary Clinton, but under Obama, Bill Clinton, Bush. None of these people would have even thought of doing this. I never thought, I never occurred to me that our government would ever do this. To me, this is miraculous. I mean, let's, let's be blunt here. Let's be honest. Let's put the cards on the table. This is a significant slap at the world, new world order. This is a significant uh, blow to the, those who want to create a, an informal international governance. Uh, you know, one that governs without officially governing. You know, they leave the city-states in place, but they, they control the levers of power, both economic, spiritual, and political. But they leave the window dressing. You know, it was, uh, it was actually Julian Huxley, the first head of the UNESCO right after World War II, who was a major eugenist um, and a follower of Charles Darwin and, and the whole eugenic movement um, that, that sought to replace the world's religions with one world religion, that being, uh, I think he called it evolutionary humanism, I believe. And that the idea was that this new religion, by which there was no God, there was no spiritual recog no recognition of a spiritual element to existence, everything was material, everything could be explained materially, that the universe just somehow is a self-perpetrating materialistic entity doesn't matter how it got here, it just sort of exists. Um, there's no moral code as such, there's no ethical code, there's all whatever the, these, these enlightened, you know, what, what, what Jean-Jacques Rousseau called the, the philosopher kings, whatever they deem to be right is right. There's no reality, basically. Ayn Rand talked about this in, in her, in her uh, political and, and philosophical essays, that everything is what you think it is, that this idea, this evolutionary humanism would replace the world's religions in the de facto sense, but not in the, in the du jour sense, I should say, but not, not in the sense of, well, actually de facto was the right word, but that the religions would be left in place for window dressing. In other words, you'd still have the stained glass. You'd still have the incense. You'd still have the bells ringing. You'd still have the vestments. You know, you'd have all of the, you know, the, the sort of the physical, visual trappings of the of the world of the various religions of the world. But their their, their philosophy, their moral content, their their cultural, their beliefs would be replaced by evolutionary humanism. When I talk about the world order, that's what I'm talking about. Not a formal government, you know, like you might have in um, in Orwell's 2000, in, in 1984, you know, where you have some guy come over the computer screen or, or the TV screen and literally tell you what to do. I'm talking about an informal world order that was envisioned by internationalists in every generation going all the way back to ancient times. This isn't new. Um, where the the unelected 
um, bureaucracy on an international level would control us through their be through their ability to manipulate the value of the currency, thus controlling the value of our property, the value of our transactions, the value of, of our intercourse in the marketplace. They would control us spiritually. They would control us through the nanny state. You know, I mean, uh, you know, the left wing likes to talk about um, President uh, Trump as being a, uh, I had a guy in my Uber car actually say to me that um, President Trump is an ultra nationalist, he tells me. I don't think so. Actually, quite the opposite. Trump is a rejection of ultranationalism. What is ultranationalism? Ultranationalism is when the state controls as many aspects of your life as possible. They control health, Obamacare. They control welfare, you know, public subsidies to the poor and to the rich, corporate welfare. They control education, public education. They control the culture. Hollywood, they control the means of how we perceive ourselves and the world. They don't do it formally. They don't have a, an open agency that decides these things. They do it by placing their minions in positions of power by demoting and getting rid of those who disagree with them. Look at the Tufts University campus. There's an example of that. The academic world, with all due respect, how many conservatives are on the Tufts campus? Would anyone like to call me and give me the name of a conservative professor at Tufts University? Right? 855-915-9636. You're welcome to join me. Chuck Morse. The Morse Force. Right here at WMFO. 855-915-9636. How many conservatives are on this campus, right? I would suggest probably none. And if there are any, they're very compromised. Because over the decades, slowly but surely, and I think it accelerated after World War II, the, the sort of the internationalist left, the establishment left, not the far left, the open left, but the, the establishment left, people like Barack Obama or, or George W. Bush, you know, the, these sort of establishment doyens, they would promote their own. They would bring them up the rat line. And they would gradually phase out and get rid of anyone who disagreed to the point where today Tufts University, as an example, and I, I'm, singling out, I'm singling you guys out only because I'm here, I'm live on your campus right now, that Tufts University, like other campuses, has become a, a, a conformist, unitary sort of a, a place where people tend to think alike where original conservative thought, faith, you know, these ideas are seen as outside of the accepted way of thinking. And that if someone has those thoughts and expresses those thoughts, they are punished. Maybe not in the most overt sense. This is, still isn't the Soviet Union where you could be put to Siberia. But they're punished in ways that are more subtle. They may su their grades may suffer. They may have ostracism and shunning, which is, by the way, one of the worst forms of punishment, right? And so young people on this campus get the message. They already know this anyway, even coming in. But they get the message that it is dangerous to think um, 
conservatively. It's dangerous to be too individual. And that if you're, if you're safely liberal and you, you, you basically, you know, goose-step to the liberal line, you will be welcomed into the club. You will get rewards. You will be, and not just social acceptance, by the way, not just, you know, getting, uh, you know, the girls and, you know, getting dates and getting, uh, you know, the fun, you know, invited to the fun parties and, and getting to do fun things with people. I'm not even talking about that, although that is a big piece. I'm talking about, you know, career. I'm talking about advancement. You know, you guys want to get into the professional world after you graduate or even before you graduate, you know that the ticket there is liberalism. That's, it's almost like a, you know, like a, like a, a secret handshake. You, you, you send out a couple of liberal you know, dog whistles and people know you're a good person and that you get to be um, you know, a part of this, um, this whole thing. Um, so you know, that's, that's a cultural as well as a political um, development. And uh, I would use the proof of that as none other than uh, the election of Donald J. Trump to the presidency, right? That caused a reaction, even on this campus here at Tufts, where people needed to, they almost like reverted back to the kindergarten. They were sitting around playing with Play-Doh, for God's sakes, and having safe spaces. And, you know, what did they go back into their, you know, little, you know, you know, uh, you know panties and pajamas, with the footsies and sit around wiggling their toes and, and drinking apple juice boxes. I mean, I don't know how bad it got. I mean, I certainly, it certainly was covered by, by the few honest media sources we have out there, including Breitbart. And by the way, that's why Breitbart was so viciously attacked because they were the only, one of the few uh, media outlets that was telling the truth about this. But, but no, they, they all started to curl up in a ball like little, you know, like fetuses. And, oh, you know, what's going to happen? These such times of danger. You know, it's, it's interesting, by the way, and I know I'm rambling here, but that's, that's why I'm here. I want to share my thoughts. That I had people telling me during the, the campaign that, that President Donald Trump or candidate Donald Trump at the time was introducing into the American firmament um, levels of violence and hostility, right? Of course, putting aside the fact that we now know that the few instances of violence associated with the Trump campaign and his movement mostly were staged. They were mostly people that were literally paid by the Hillary Clinton campaign who hired these groups? This is all part of. This is all available. If you question me, there are videos of this. You can look at it on YouTube. Uh, Project Veritas. Uh, you know the, the James O'Keefe's group. He did a lot of. He did some amazing undercover uh, reporting on this, where he showed that uh, that these guys were literally going out there. They were paid. Who is it? This guy Creamer, somebody like that. I mean. And to 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 create trouble. I mean, to to stir people up, to pose as Trump supporters, and and make ugly comments, and try to rough people up, and get get people to to have instances where they'd react. Right? They were paid thugs. This is like what the Nazis did with brown shirts. Okay. But putting that aside, and putting aside the comments after the election that. Somebody who uh, mentioned their support for Trump also said something against 
um, you know, a black person or, or a gay person or, or a woman, right? Putting those things aside, uh, those instances, by the way, I think about 90% of those have been disproven, um, including the incident at Wellesley College, which was disproven. Never happened, all right? Putting all that aside, isn't it interesting now to watch how violent um, the left-wing supporters of Hillary Clinton and the left in general have been? You know, the uh, the day of the... Um, the inauguration, how the, the city had to call up 10,000, you know, uh, policemen. I mean, no wonder they weren't the kind of crowds that we would expect. People didn't come out because they're scared. These things tend to, you know, reduce the the level of attendance by average people who don't who just want to come out, right? Uh, but, but nevertheless, they were able to pull off violence. They were able to loot stores and beat people up and do all the wonderful things that, frankly, the left likes to do. Where's the comments about that, you know? Now, the, the woman march apparently went off pretty peacefully. Um, but um, I guess while we're on the subject of that, I mean, what did they stand for, really, you know? George Soros had a hand in it. Apparently, he financed a lot, a lot of people in it. As he's financed, he's been behind a lot of left-wing agitation going back quite some years. Um, I mean, they just would express their hatred of Donald Trump, right? Is that enough to have a movement? Donald Trump apparently is supposed to have something against women, right? Is that really, is that really true? I mean, is that really enough to, to create a political movement over these sort of flimsy statements? Uh, let's examine that for a minute. It did turn out that during the campaign, candidate Trump was caught on tape many years ago making lewd and ugly comments about women. That's a terrible. I hold that against Trump. I think we all do. You know, it shows a cat. It shows somebody who, I guess you might say back then, and back then he was a liberal Democrat, but putting that aside... Um, you know, he's a product of the of the, the Hugh Hefner Playboy generation, you know, where people think it's it's cute and, and trendy to make these kind of, you know, lewd sexual comments. I mean, it's it's just it, by the way, as an aside, it's kind of interesting to listen to Stephanie Miller, um, who I think is very funny sometimes on progressive radio, go on and on and on about Trump's lewd comments. I mean, you ever check her out? Holy crap. I mean, talk about, you know, nasty, ugly portrayals of people. I mean, I listen to it and look, I'm an adult and quite frankly, I find it funny, right? But I listen to it with, uh, yeah, I'm not going to be influenced by it. I mean, and I don't listen too much to it. I could take just so much. But hardly is she in a position to, to criticize anybody uh, for making lewd comments. But but is that really enough to um, to condemn a man and to say oh you know he's he's got something against women? I don't think so. I think that it, it's been pointed out and it's been observed by his own daughter Ivanka Trump, who is you know a, a high level executive in the Trump organization, that Donald Trump's organization going way back has had many more women than men in positions of executive authority, 
and has had and and pays women equal to men. They're not, you know, women are not paid less in that company than men. Okay, so the whole chant about equal pay for equal work. Trump has a record on that, whereas Hillary Clinton at the State Department and in her Senate office, Barack Obama in his White House, apparently women are paid less. So, uh, you know, figure that one out, okay? But, of course, because he's a Republican, that can't be. We have to, you know, look at it differently. Anyways, let me do a public service announcement. Uh, let's pull out. I, I have to do this the old-fashioned way. I'm still not a technical um, whiz here. So hold on. Let me get the book. Okay, you're listening to WMFO AM 91.5 Medford, Boston. Uh, let's see, Tufts University Art Gallery. The Tufts University Art Gallery is dedicated to conceiving and presenting exhibits and educational programs that explore new global perspectives on art and art discourse. All expositions and related programming are free, open to the public, and fully accessible. The Tufts University Art Gallery is located in the Adikman Arts Center at 40 Talbot Avenue in Somerville, Medford campus of Tufts University. For current exhibitions and hours, just search the web for, quote, Tufts University Art Gallery, unquote, or you can also call 617-627-3518. That number again is 617-627-3518. 3518 for the Tufts University Art Gallery. This has been a public service message from WMFO in Medford, Tufts Educational Radio. Dial 911 for emergencies. Are you a student living off campus? Do you know what number to dial in case of an emergency? To ensure that you get police, fire, or medical help quickly and most efficiently, if you are off campus, dial 911. Although dialing your college public safety number will eventually send emergency services, there may be a delay in getting the needed resources to you. <clears throat> Those seconds may be extremely important if it means life or death. So if you have an off campus emergency, dial 911. This is a public service message from WMFO in Medford. Tufts Educational Radio. And let me just do one more here. Numbers to think about. American alcohol consumption. There's an interesting chart here. Just 10% of the adult population drinks more than three quarters of all the alcohol consumed in the United States. While 30% of American adults don't drink at all, another 30% average less than one drink per week. The top 10% of American adults, 24 million of us, consume an average of 74 drinks per week, more than 10 drinks a day. Some numbers to think about. This is a public service message from WMFO in Medford, Tufts Educational Radio. Anyway, thank you very much. And you're welcome to join the program, by the way, at... 
855-915-9636. I should mention to take a brief opportunity to to do a shameless plug here that my books are available at Amazon Kindle. Chuck Morse, just put my name in the server at Amazon. That's Morse, M-O-R-S-E. And you'll see over 10 nonfiction books that I've written, all available. Uh, most of them are e-books. A couple of them are published. One of my books was published is by a major publisher. It was kind of a fluke, but there it was in 2010 by World Net Daily Books, WND Books. And that was The Nazi Connection to Islamic Terrorism. It's a story of Hajjamin al-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem, and his relationship primarily with Adolf Hitler. Anyway, getting back to politics of the day. So the, the Million Woman March um, was based upon these flimsy accusations that Donald J. Trump has something against women because he made some lewd and ugly and unfortunate comments. I do hold those comments against him, but I don't think he has anything against women, certainly not from a public policy standpoint. I think that Trump probably more than any other president is most likely to bring out legislation that would, uh, or at least create a, a business atmosphere that would encourage equal pay for equal work, that would encourage, uh, you know, pregnancy leave, that would encourage uh, things to support women in the workplace, particularly mothers. Um, you know, is, isn't that um, what we're talking about here? so that women can advance in society as much as possible and have all the blessings and benefits of living in our great free country. Most important, Donald J. Trump's policies, at least uh, it looks that way, are going to create economic benefits and, and economic growth for our society. He is deliberately and consciously seeking to do that. And while this may not seem like, this may not seem right on the surface, I would respectfully suggest that President Obama did not want that, nor did Presidents Bush or Clinton, probably going back to Bush one. They did not want to improve Americans' American economy. They may have said they did, but they were more interested in transferring American industry out of the country uh, and merging the American economy into the global economy to create this world economy. That was their main interest. They were not nationalists in the real sense. Donald Trump is. Donald Trump's primary uh, drive, his life ambition and work, um, has been to put America first. And that is, a, that is something that we really haven't had in this country uh, by any leader, for actually since, for, since Franklin Roosevelt and even since uh, Calvin Coolidge. So, you know, that's good for women. It's good for minorities. It's good for everybody, okay? And that includes all Americans. Donald J. Trump is asserting a form of nationalism that is an American form, which is that we respect our government because our government respects our rights. It respects our freedoms, Government, we recognize that our government, starting with the Declaration of Independence, derives its authority from the Creator, from God. And that the individual then, God gives a certain amount of authority to the individual 
You know, when, when, when in the book of Genesis, God created men and women in his image. And it does say women, by the way. It says both men and women. And as such, we enjoy a locus of authority over our own lives and destinies by nature, right? That, and and, and our, our authority is limited by, by the weak and frail nature of our own lives. You know, we're only human beings. We are not gods. We're reflections of God. We also have the ability to sin, and we can choose sin, and we do at times choose sin. Everybody does. But as such, we then establish government systems of law so that we can function in a manner that's orderly and that does not, uh, by which we, we have a means to compromise our absolute freedoms in a way that allows the maximum amount of freedom for everybody. You know, we can't have complete freedom. We're not totally sovereign. Only God is sovereign. So we establish governments to regulate freedom. That's why we have governments, to keep the peace in conflict, to regulate freedom in peacetime. Um, and, and that the good government is one that regulates the least. I think it was Thomas Jefferson that said that, right? The best government, gov- government that governs best governs least. I believe that was Jefferson. I'm not sure, but I think it was. It might have been um, uh, Calvin Coolidge. I, I don't know. But that's been the American creed. That is American nationalism. American nationalism is the right to dissent, the right to criticize your government. And if you look at conservatives, that's what conservatism is all about. That's what it's always been all about. Criticizing power, criticizing government. Take a look at when Reagan was president. The people that were most critical of Reagan were conservatives. You know, we may admire someone like a Reagan or a, or, or a Donald Trump, but we're very zealous when it comes to protecting our individual freedoms. So the conservative vision of nationalism is one that is tempered by the, the right to be free. I mean, it, it is a government, a, na- a nation state that, that operates in the context of a constitution and that is limited and that uh, basically is there to serve the people. And if it does that, then we love that government. If it doesn't, we don't. But we're always suspicious of government. That's American nationalism. That is conservative nationalism. That is Donald Trump's nationalism. So the guy who was my Uber passenger who said that Trump is an ultranationalist, he was, I don't know his politics. I don't, my encounters with people in Uber are very brief, so I don't really know these people. But I sense that he was a liberal and as such that he was projecting that it was his belief he was the ultranationalist. Because the left, by nature, is ultra-nationalist. It worships the state, the nanny state, involved in as many aspects of the life of the citizen as possible. That's what ultra-nationalism is. It's, it's, it's a worship of the state. And so, you know, Trump is getting away from that. The movement around Trump, and it's more than just Donald Trump as a person, even though he's an extremely, unbelievably exceptional person. It's the movement around him that has shifted away from that for the first time in modern American history. I think it's for the first time since the election of Warren Harding, who was somewhat of a, uh, a conservative guy. <coughs> and for that reason, Donald Trump is a revolutionary 
We are experiencing a revolution in this country. We are seeing the old authoritarian negative left, the nattering nabobs of negativism, as um, as William Sapphire coined that phrase during the Nixon years. The um, and I think he put it into the mouth of Vice President Spiro Agnew. The uh, you know th- those who are you know they, they have a negative view of American exceptionalism of American sovereignty. They want to see America dumbed down. That they have taken a major hit. We should appreciate and understand the significance of this victory. My hope over the next, my work, assuming that I live that long, over the next four to eight years, as, as a radio broadcaster, as a podcaster, as an author, as a columnist, um, is to try to hopefully educate people, enlighten people with regard to why this is significant, why we should be behind this. And I think people get that. You know, the polls that are out today, this is only, today is actually a, less than a week since, since Trump was sworn in. The one-week anniversary will be tomorrow. Today's Thursday. And he's already up 59% in the last Rasmussen poll. 59% of the American people approve of his presidency, right? I mean, Barack Obama never had those numbers. I don't think Barack Obama, he always is around maybe 45, 47%. I think once a couple of times he might have, might have pierced the 50% mark, maybe. And even that was probably rigged because of the way pollsters, we found out from Hillary Clinton's uh, hacked emails that, um, that you know, they were rigging those polls anyways. They, they, they basically poll Democrats. But now that he's in office, the truth is coming out. People are behind him. He is reminding us of what it is to be an American. We have to continue to talk about this and educate people about why this is important. And all the left can do is sit there whining, oh, he's lying. There weren't that many people at his inaugural. Eh. And by the way, this business of voter fraud, I think this is one of the biggest things Trump has taken on. This is amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's almost up there with these, you know, defunding the U.N., which is incredible. I never thought we'd see that. Or cutting off that, you know, that check to the Palestinians. Uh, or, you know, uh, freezing uh, public servant hirings or, you know, cutting regulations and all these other fantastic things that he's already started doing. Building the wall, which makes sense. I mean, you know, it, it always made sense. There's no rational reason to be against that. What should we do? Just leave the border open? And that is his initiative to investigate voter fraud. That is an amazing initiative. It's about time. We have had states. And by the way, I'm not saying that there aren't examples in history where Republicans haven't engaged in voter fraud. They have. But they're exceptions. They're not the rule. Democrats have engaged in voter fraud way back. I mean, President Kennedy uh, was elected by use of voter fraud. I don't think anyone denies that. 
uh, whether you like Kennedy or not, and I do like Kennedy, I think he's a great president, he nevertheless um, had a lot of people in the Chicago area vote for him who had who were dead. I mean, and the same thing in Texas. You notice how every time there's an attempt by a state to purge the voter rolls of people who have died or who have moved out of state, there's a huge outcry from the left. This is suppression and this sort of thing. It's because they rely on voter fraud. They use voter fraud if they think an election is going to be close and they can just tip it with a little couple of extra thousands of votes. They do it all the time. And if they say no, fine. Then let them join the investigation. Let's have a full airing on this topic. They don't want that. Instead, they're going to try to demean Donald Trump for bringing it up. This is where the bodies are buried, I'm telling you right now. Because if we expose the level of voter fraud that has been exist that has existed in this country for decades, but that's gotten worse in recent decades, then the entire rotten, socialistic, left-wing Democrat edifice is going to crumble into the sewer where it belongs. Because they don't have the support. Because they have stolen elections. I mean, we could look at recent history, besides ACORN, which has had several, uh, you know, big cases of voter fraud over the past many decades by, by filling the voter rolls and the registration rolls with false names. We can take a look at this last election, okay? Um, New Hampshire, that was stolen. Uh, you know, New Hampshire has same-day registration. Um, you can you don't even have to show your address. You can just go up there um, and, and register and then vote. You don't think people crossed over from Massachusetts to vote in the New Hampshire election? I mean, really? You know, uh, Hillary Clinton won the state by .03. Maggie Hassan won her Senate seat by less than that. I think her victory was, was like a, less than 1,000 votes um, in that state. Does anybody really think that, that there wasn't fraud going on there in certain Democratic-controlled precincts? I mean, really. The new governor who was a Republican, that being Sununu, Chris Sununu. He called for an end to that system. Let's hold him to that. Let's make sure that he follows up on that, like President Trump is doing, and that he exposes that corrupt system. There should be a certain amount of value to a vote. We should have a means by which we can identify the voter and make sure that they are who they say they are. This is not an honor system. You know, uh, California, the second place I want to talk about, they have a, uh, the Secretary of State's website has an honor system, basically, where all you have to do is put in your name, the community you live, you don't even have to give your address, and you have to check a box swearing that you are a citizen, because it's illegal to vote unless you're a citizen, uh, under pain of perjury. But we don't really know who you are. You don't have to show a gas. You don't have to show a social security number or a, or a driver's license. In fact, we know that the state's been anyways registering illegal aliens for driver's licenses for years. So when Donald Trump says that upwards of millions of people voted illegally in that state, 
He's probably right. I think that it's safe to say that while it may not be many millions, it's at least probably, I would think, a million or a half a million people voted illegally in that state. We know that the the, uh, Jill Stein recounts revealed massive voter fraud in, in Detroit where computers, computer-generated voting machines were triggering, you know, you could stick the, the, the ballot in the machine six, seven, eight times, and it would vote. It would carry that as a vote. It was so bad there that the Secretary of State canceled the recount, put an audit on it, so it stopped the whole, shut the whole thing down because of the direction it was going. I think it's safe to say that that if 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 those fraudulent votes had been were exposed and thrown out, President Trump would have increased his margin of victory in that state probably at least by double, right? I think he won by, was it 12,000 votes? It probably would have gone up to 24,000, 25,000 votes if they had gotten rid of the fraudulent votes cast in Detroit. There were reports of voter fraud in, in, um, in Virginia, uh, you know, Virginia's governor, Terry McAuliffe, is a, really a corrupt hack. I mean, he's a Clinton, you know, sort of a, a fixer going way back. He's under investigation by the FBI. <clears throat> and he promised the state to Hillary uh, by getting uh, convicted felons to vote. Now, the convicted felons were supposed to have and each of them would be investigated before given a ballot. And that would have to have been signed off by, I think, the governor or by, um, you know, a, a, an attorney general or a state authority. Well, that, that didn't happen. The governor used an auto pen to sign off 60,000 people, right? And that's how much Hillary Clinton won that state by, 60,000. So that's a case of voter fraud, likely. There were reports of voter fraud in North Carolina, in Florida. I think that the only reason why, why Hillary Clinton didn't win was because she was believing the fraudulent polls that had her so far ahead. We know from the WikiLeaks releases that Podesta had arranged with the pollsters to fix those polls by polling only Democrats or mostly Democrats. So Hillary was up by 8, by 10, by 12. And I think she actually started to believe this. So they didn't pull out the whole voter fraud machine. They only pulled out half of it. So as a result, they weren't able to steal the election. If they had really thought she was going to lose, they would have, believe me. Barack Obama, there were cases in 2012 where he won, you know, there were certain battleground states we may remember. Ohio, particularly, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania. Well, there were precincts in those in the big urban cities in those states, which have been controlled by Democrat machines for many, many decades, where Obama won like 98% of the vote, 99%, I think in one, one or two cases, 105%. Now, that's not likely. Uh, Rush Limbaugh commented right after that election that this even, even uh, you know, Castro doesn't get that much of a vote. I mean, they already had found in Detroit under the Jill, the, uh, Jill Stein recount that, that um, 
there were more votes cast than there were registered voters. Okay? What does that tell you? Anyways, President Trump is absolutely right to bring this up, and he should be applauded for it because he doesn't have to do it. Politics would indicate that he could just let it lie since he won the election. Why, why expend the political capital on it? But he is doing it. He's doing it because it's a principle. Because we've learned that Donald Trump tends to, to do things not just for political expediency, but he does it out of principle. So we should applaud that. Anyways, these are very interesting times ahead. Very exciting times, in my opinion. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, as far as this program is concerned on WMFO, I'm hoping to expand the show. I'm hoping, uh, I'm right now I'm in no big hurry to do that because my daughter is applying for college this year and I'm busy with that and I don't want to cause too much trouble. <laughs> you know, I want to keep a relatively low profile so as I get my feet wet here, I hope to just do this show. I'm, I'm being honest here. I'm happy to just do it once every other week, but I've been told that, that over the summer, once she's safely accepted into a college and she's getting ready to go there, um, I could bring the program up to a once a week, maybe even a once a day show. And I'd like to do that. And when I do, I intend to see about syndicating it uh, through the, um, the system we have here to other college stations where they can carry it live and, and just ramp things up. Because my goal is to have a program that questions the, the liberal left political correctness culture of American college campuses and, and get people to think finally and maybe even openly, freely. You know, this show, this station is the freeform station and I want to live up to that nostrum here. I feel like I'm in the spirit of WMFO and its great history. This is one of the oldest stations in America, by the way. By really, you know, shaking up the political correct conformity and asking people to think about issues from many perspectives. So anyway, on that note, I'll thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about me, go to uh, Amazon or Amazon Kindle and put my name in the server, Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, like Morse code, and you'll see all my books come up. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Let me see if I can get this thing happening. Uh -oh.